We've got a a pretty short passage in front of us this morning, Luke 17. The very beginning of Luke 17, you're just looking for verses 1 through 4. At Prairie Hill right now, we are just every week trying to capture one thing from Jesus' teaching that will help us better picture God to the community that we live in. It will help us better minister to people. Just one thing. We're making small course corrections as we go through the Gospel of Luke, finding out, okay, my natural tendency is to want to do this, but actually in the kingdom of God, I'm, especially, I'm expected to live like this. I, I need to make a, a correction. And so that's what we run into today. Luke 17, um, the very first words we read, and he said to his disciples, okay, Jesus has something to say to us. If you are his disciple, he has something to say to you. So we're just going to find out what that is, see if we can put it into practice. That's how we're going to spend the next minutes together. Um, If you're able to stand this morning, I do want to invite you to stand for the reading of the word in honor of God and his word. And again, we just have verses one through four, and this is what we find. And he said to his disciples, temptations, are, t- temptations to sin, excuse me, are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Father, help us receive this instruction well as good soil. This is not going to be easy, but impress upon us the importance of making these course corrections for Jesus' sake. We love him and are committed to him. But we fight against this natural tendency to give into the flesh and do what we want to do. And so open our eyes to see uh, where we need to change so we can picture him faithfully. And we are his disciples, and he's loved us with a great love. And we pray in his wonderful name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Well, that passage reading went very quickly, and um, one thing we might wonder is what, what ties all this material together? Like everything we just read, what's the, what's the unifying concept? Is there a unifying concept? Well, there is. This passage is about how we handle sin, both our own sin and the sins of others against us. We all have to deal with both of those things. All of us here deal with our own sin. That's a constant need, isn't it? A constant struggle. Dealing with our own actions, thoughts that are sinful. And we all have to deal with the sin of others against us. How are we going to deal with that when someone sins against us? And both of those things are addressed here. And in both cases, 
how we handle our own sin and how we handle it when someone's against, someone sins against us. In both of those cases, the instruction given to us for how to handle those things is pretty extreme. I think we would all agree that what we're told to do in both cases is, well, I think it's pretty extreme. On the one hand, we're told that we need to be extremely careful and cautious that we don't cause others to sin by our own actions. And on the other hand, we're to be extremely gracious to others when they sin against us. That's the big picture idea here, that we disciples of Jesus are to be different, that we're to be distinct. And this is one way that we live differently and live distinctly, is that we live at the extremes in terms of how we handle sin. So let's talk about each of these two components that we see here. First of all, we're to be extremely cautious to not cause sin. Sin in others through our own actions, right? This is verses one and two. This is the first half. That we're to be extremely cautious to not cause sin in others through our actions, okay? That's verse one. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone, that's a large, heavy stone used for grinding grain. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So Jesus communicates how serious this is through his illustration. It would be better for us as disciples of Jesus to be forced into death by drowning than to be the cause of sin in the life of another believer. That seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? Like, it's better for me to die than to cause another disciple just to sin? Jesus probably has in mind newer disciples, like young disciples. When, when he says one of these little ones, it's probably best to take that as a reference to people young in the faith, not like children. It would be easy or natural to read that as children, but there's no children like in the area. We're not told that there's children standing around that he's like pointing at a child. So we're talking about impressionable disciples, people young in the faith who are in the family of faith. He's telling us to be very cautious that we don't act as the cause of sin in these, in these lives. And I just need to ask you, have you ever taken your actions and words this seriously? Like deadly serious? Let's do two things here with this first component. Let's talk about why it's such a big deal. Why it's so important to be so cautious that we don't become the cause of sin 
in another believer's life. And then we'll talk about some of the more subtle ways that we might actually be doing this without realizing it. First of all, the the why. Why is this so serious? I think if we're honest, this seems a bit out of proportion. Why is this so serious? Well, it's so serious because temptations to sin are sure to come. Verse 1. Your brother or sister in Christ is waging a brutal battle against sin right now. Temptations are coming at them. You know how all those temptations are coming to you? You you know how you see that going on in your life? And you're thinking, wow, this is a really bloody battle. I'm fighting against sin and trying to ward off temptation. That's going on in the life of your brother and sister also. From every direction, Satan desires to trap them in sin, get a foothold in their life, steal their joy, ruin their family, destroy relationships, destroy the church fellowship, bring shame to them, and bring isolation. That's Satan's plan. That's his blueprint for the life of your brother or sister in Christ. It's also his blueprint for you. Some of you are somewhere in that cycle right now, yourself, where you're trapped in sin or Satan's got a foothold and relationships are being damaged. Some of you are right there in the middle. Some of you have loved ones that are going through that right now that you can see this at work in their life. We're all in the cycle somewhere, at least at the very first step where temptations are sure to come. That's step one. We're all at least there. Every human has a target on their back, especially Christians. And Satan is the author of these temptations, working in conjunction with our own sinful desires to cause this destruction in our lives. That's the reality that your brother or sister in Christ is facing, this powerful enemy who wants to destroy them. And your Role in their life is to fight next to them. Your role in their life is to fight next to them and support them and pray for them and listen to them and remind them of what's true and remind them of what's noble and beautiful and to point them to Christ, to Come and rebuke them when necessary and turn them around and head them in the right direction. Your role is to make sure they know they're not alone as they battle temptation and potential destruction. That's who you should be to your brother and your sister in Christ. And for you to forsake that role and instead become someone who joins Satan in encouraging sin in their life. Well, the only word for that is satanic. That's what Satan does. Satan tempts people toward sin. 
when we think of satanic, we probably conjure up images in our mind of like darkness and ritual sacrifice and just really weird, ugly, horrible, dark things when we think of satanic. But remember that Satan's first laboratory was a beautiful garden. Very pleasant tree. Regular words and persuasive words. Tempting humans with this beautiful piece of fruit. We have to remember that satanic actions can happen in beautiful places and with regular words. I think now we can see why it's so important that we're so cautious about not causing sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when we do that, we do two wrong things. First of all, we rob them of the supportive brother or sister that they should have. And then we become a satanic presence in their life. That's horrible. That's really horrible. Now I can understand why it would be better for me to die than to be that. That's the why. Now, part two, are there any subtle ways that this could be happening in our lives that we may be kind of excusing or just not aware of? I'm going to mention two things specifically. And I'll tell you right now, I'm going to get to the end, and you're going to say, whoa, that was really specific. Like, he must be talking to, like, one person in particular. They're very, very specific. They're, they're just examples, but they're very specific, admittedly. And not all of you are going to struggle with these things, either of these things. But I chose them. I'll tell you why I chose these two things. Because they're so prevalent and they're so destructive. These things are so prevalent and so destructive, I felt like it was worth mentioning these two things because of their capacity to destroy and to harm and the, the ripple effects that they cause. We don't need to spend any time on the obvious things that we might be doing or that someone might do that would lead other people into sin. Like we all know there's pastors and there's church leaders out there that send their followers down the wrong path and give them false doctrine, teach them things that aren't true, lead them into sin. Yeah, that, that happens. Okay, we're talking about subtle things that we might be doing. Jesus says here, verse three, pay attention to yourselves. We pay so much attention to what other people are doing and how they might be sinning. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Scrutinize yourself. Examine yourself. Here's one thing. First example, how might this be happening in our lives? Are you leading others into the sin of gossiping or grumbling? That's my first really specific thing, like subtle thing that we might be excusing that actually is leading other people into sin. When we gossip about others or we grumble about others or we put a label on others or otherwise tear people down in front of others, we sin. And 
we encourage others to sin in the same way. As a matter of fact, we hope that other people start sinning in the same way. Like the whole reason that we're like sharing these negative things about another person and grumbling about them or gossiping about them is because we want, we hope other people join in because we look really bad if no one else joins us. Now we're just kind of out there on a limb saying all these bad things and it's crickets from everybody else. We hope that other people come in and engage all of that negativity and take our side and join us in this teardown party, in this grumble party, in the gossiping about what's going on. We probably think it's innocent. We may even think it's righteous because, yeah, we're, we're sorting things out. We're kind of sorting out the bad people from the good people. But think about how many relational problems cause pain in a church. Think about how many problems in a church are relational. And how many people leave a church family for relational reasons. Because someone said something about them. This is how Satan gets a foothold and does his work. Remember, he does his work in beautiful places, in ordinary, regular words. Be a model of restraint in how you talk about other people. If you have an issue with another person, do what verse 3 says. Go and talk to that person and rebuke them. The text doesn't say if you have an issue with a person, go and discuss it with someone else. If you, if you think you're mature, if you really are so sure that you're mature in Christ, like more mature than this person you're talking about, if you really are that mature in Christ, you will do what verse 3 says. You will go to that person. You won't talk about them with other people. That's the sign of maturity, not being able to judge someone with a group of friends, but following the instruction of the word. Be very careful about your words. It's one of the things that makes us distinct as followers of Jesus Christ. The world is not careful with its words about people. The world shows no restraint. We show restraint. Second thing, we're talking about subtle ways that we could actually be causing other people to sin. We've talked about how bad that is, like the millstone thing. Bottom of the lake is better than causing others to sin. Could that be going on in our lives? Talked about gossiping and grumbling. This one's really specific too, but it's, again, so destructive and so prevalent that it made the list. It's the number of young men claiming to follow Christ. So we're talking about Christian young men pressuring their girlfriend or their fiance to give them all of the privileges of marriage with none of the responsibility of marriage. I, I can't believe how prevalent this is. If you're doing that, if you're a, a young man and you're pressuring your girlfriend, pressuring, pressuring your fiance to say, hey, let's do everything that a married, married couple gets to do, but 
we don't have to be married in, in order to do it. If you're doing that, that's satanic. That's the, only, that's the only word that we can use to describe that. Why is it satanic? That's a, that's a harsh label. It's because you're using a persuasive argument. And you're making promises in order to lead someone into sin. Are you presenting arguments to your girlfriend? Are you making promises to your girlfriend and hoping to lead them into that sin? That's satanic. That's exactly what Satan did in the garden. He makes arguments, he makes promises, and he leads people down the road of sin. I, you may not think this is a big problem, know this is a big problem. Some of you know very well that this is a big problem. I actually, I actually had a friend, a young man, who wrote a book. He wrote a book about how it's okay for Christians to be sexually intimate before marriage and made all of his best arguments. If you're a young woman, don't believe it. Don't believe them. They're wrong. If they love you, they will not try to lead you down a road to sin. They won't try to use persuasive arguments and promises. It's the opposite of love to make no binding commitment and just take and take and take and take. And young men, you need to know that that's not the way of Christ. It would be better for you to be drowned with a millstone around your neck than to lead someone else into sin, a sin that profoundly changes their life. Please don't bring me your book. Please don't bring me your arguments. Don't bring me your rationale. I know that behind all of that cover, the arguments, the rationale, I know that behind all of it, there is just a boy who's trying to minimize personal responsibility so he can maximize personal benefit. That's all that's going on. That's not being a man. That's being satanic. Satan leads people into sin. Your role is to lead people to Christ. Now, like I said, those things are really specific. That may not hit you at all. The point is, pay attention to yourselves. Evaluate yourself very carefully. Just ask the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who can search your heart. What might I be doing and be unaware of that's actually leading another believer down the road of sin? And just ask God to show you that. We've got to be willing to at least ask that question. This, this kind of extreme, right? Does that seem extreme? Yeah, that, that seems kind of extreme. That kind of extreme self-evaluation is one thing that makes us distinct about being so careful that we don't become a satanic influence in someone's life when we should be pointing them to Jesus. Okay, that's the first thing. That's one end of our extremity, okay? Being extreme about being cautious and not causing sin. The other end is just 
how extremely gracious we have to be handling the sin of other people against us. It's like, couldn't we get off easy on one of these sides? Like, we have to be this way, but couldn't... Now we have to also, like, be really, really gracious when someone sins against us? That doesn't seem fair. Like, I'm being really careful, but when they're not being careful and sinning against me all these times, now I have to be so gracious. That's exactly what the text says. We get it extreme over here, and we get it extreme over here. When Jesus says, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day, right? He doesn't mean to cap it at seven, right? So if it's eight, right? No, still, okay? He may, have well, he may as well have said a million times or infinite number of times. Seven is the number of completeness. So however many times during the day. I mean, can you imagine someone I was trying to think, what's the maximum number of times someone, one individual has sinned against me in a day? I don't know, maybe two? But can you imagine someone sinning against you seven times in a day and every time coming to you saying, I repent? And you're expected to forgive them. That's the instruction. That's pretty extreme. I mean, most of us are going to check out After a couple times, right, we're going to say, no, not going to forgive them again. That would be enabling them. Or no, not going to forgive them again because that would make me a pushover. Or find another reason why I'm not going to forgive them because our common sense takes over. That's common sense. That's human nature. This is not the kingdom of God. Jesus stands here and says to us, you must forgive. Forgiveness is not optional in the Christian life. We are to be extremely gracious in forgiving the sin of others. Okay? Two reasons why that's so important, and then we'll be done. Why is it so important that we're so gracious to others? Well, first of all, it's because it pictures what God has done for us, right? That's the first reason it's so important to act this way toward others is because it pictures what God has done for us. How many times have you committed the same sin against God and he has forgiven you? Think about your own relationship with sin and relationship of God and how he has treated you when you've gone to him and said, I'm sorry, I repent. Does he love you any less? Does he ever fail to forgive you? No. And our goal is to picture for other people what God is like so that when you do this amazing thing where you continue to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive the same sin over and over and over, who is that like? Who does that? God does that. And we have to remember that God is not a pushover Like when God acts that way toward us, it's not because God is soft or a pushover. It's because there has been a real payment in real time for your sin. The atonement of Jesus Christ that actually happened, actual blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins so that when God forgives you, there's a real basis for that forgiveness. It's actually just. 
Pastor Tyler taught me this, pointed this out to me. It's actually just for God to forgive your sin all those times because he's already extracted the cost from Jesus. What a, what a wonderful, true thought that when you go to God and ask for that forgiveness, that's why he forgives you. He's just to do it because the full cost has been taken from Jesus and to require it from you again would not be just. So we have to be extremely gracious toward others because it pictures what God has done for us. Second reason it's so important to be this way is because it sets us apart from the world. It makes us distinct. This kind of gracious forgiveness is one big thing that makes us distinct as Christians, as followers of Jesus. Have you noticed in recent months as you've been listening to advertisements and online and just observing culture at large, have you noticed how in many ways our culture is making strides in kindness? Have you noticed that kindness toward other people is in style in Western culture? The culture is preaching kindness. Advertisements, corporate advertisements used to talk all the time just about, hey, how their product is such a good deal and how delicious it is or whatever. Now when you listen to those, they're talking about kindness. About valuing other people and being a source of kindness in the world. The school district that our family is part of is preaching kindness all the time. You get, they get parents in for a, a meeting at the school. They're talking about kindness and how they're preaching that message to the students. Corporations and school districts are preaching kindness. You know, that's our message. That's Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another. And we might have to ask the question, are we getting out-kindnessed by the world? That's a question for a different time. The point today is that in many respects, our efforts in kindness don't make us distinct right now. There's nothing distinct about that right now. Everyone's preaching the message of kindness. However, our forgiveness of others does make us distinct. Forgiveness of someone that has wronged us is still something that the world has no rationale for and no basis for. The world's response when someone sins against them is to condemn and to label and to cancel. A Christian, on the other hand, forgives again and again and again and again because we have been forgiven again and again and again and again. There's no limit to what we forgive in others because there's no limit to what we've been forgiven by God. And that's something that the world does not have. If someone has not experienced that kind of forgiveness from God where their debt has been wiped clean, this incredible graciousness of God to not write me off as a fake follower, 
or a phony disciple? When I sin against him but continue to forgive me, if a person hasn't experienced that, they have no foundation to forgive someone else. They just absorb the offense and keep feeding on that offense and they write off the offender. We do the opposite. We write off the sin and we keep feeding on Christ. The great forgiver of our sins against God. So let me ask you, last thing here as we close, are you presently forfeiting your distinctiveness by refusing to forgive someone? Is there someone out there that's waiting for forgiveness from you? We're taught that we must be extreme in our graciousness. So if it feels difficult, you know that you're following Jesus because he's the one who has pointed out the need for this extreme response. So if it feels extreme, you're getting it right. And we have to do it so we can set this beautiful, forgiving God before the world. We want the world to see this beautiful, forgiving God. And if we don't do it, if we don't picture him, then who will? So there it is, life at the extremes, extremely cautious about not causing sin in others. Take it to heart. Extremely gracious in forgiving the sins of others against us. Take that to heart. Week by week, we're just learning a little bit more about this distinct life in the kingdom of God. Let's ask God for his help. Father, we receive this teaching. We pray that you would help us by the Holy Spirit to put it into practice this week. Um, We pray for the Holy Spirit's searching light on our hearts to reveal to us where we might be leading others towards sin. And we pray for the Holy Spirit's searching light and power to be able to forgive those who sin against us over and over and over. Because what we really want is to picture you in this wonderful Jesus. And we pray in his beautiful name. Amen.